0: Last time, if you would with me, we're going to go back to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, and uh, we are going to read verse 15 today. Do not be deceived by the brevity of this verse. Don't let the brevity of this verse uh, take away from its potency. Uh, Let's read the scripture together. This is what the word of God says. In verse 15, Paul says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's pray. Father, Lord, today we want, to, we want to relish that gift. We want to revel in the gift. We want to understand the gift. We want to appreciate the gift. and We want to value and treasure the gift. Lord, it is the gift above all gifts. It is the greatest gift of all. It is the gift that we can never repay. And so, God, I pray today that you would help us Not to gloss over the gift, but to take a moment to step back and to gaze upon the glory of the gift. We pray your help in this time. We pray you visit our church today and by your spirit we pray that you would be so pleased to bless us with your special presence. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you remember uh, last week, we looked at verses uh, 10 through 15, and we looked at an entire section, that whole pericope there, and it was really the last section on giving, chapter 8, chapter 9. That whole passage of Scripture was all about money and generosity and the type of giving that glorifies God, and we looked at all of that, and we came to the, the climax of that passage when... When God says that God, or Paul says God loves a cheerful giver. We looked at the last passage of that text where Paul exhorts us in light of the many blessings that result from our giving and the fact that we are going to reap, if we sow right, we will reap a harvest of righteousness. But then in verse 15, the apostle Paul, out of nowhere, just erupts in thanksgiving scholars have sort of grappled with how does chapter 8 and 9 how does that cohere with chapter 10 and all sorts of theories have come from textual critics and higher criticism that well this is probably a section of his letters chapter 8 and 9 that was written at a different time than the rest of 2 Corinthians, and that these sections were written at different times, maybe even different letters that were ultimately edited by some editor, and it was brought in later at a different time. i probably take a more conservative view of the letter. I think it was written all together and sent all together in in, in one piece. Therefore, it is not surprising to note that Paul interrupts his flow In verse 15, by just selfishly and unashamedly exploding in doxology, he's no longer talking to them. He just says, thanks be to God for his emphasis, his indescribable gift. And I say, that verse right there, that section brings this whole context to a resounding conclusion so that now he can move on to the next, the next transition. Now, I, Paul, he moves on to a different subject. So it's no surprise that this is found here at the end of this whole lengthy section. And I think it, it makes a nice transition to chapter 10, which we will get to. But what I didn't want to do was gloss over these words. Because they are so incredible, so amazing, so wonderful that we have to feel the weight of it. And we have to, I want us to be able to say with Paul, not just listen to Paul, not just hear Paul, but to be able to say with Paul, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I want our church, of those Many of the families aren't here today. But I want our church to be able to talk like that. I want to be able to hear this in our conversation, in our prayers, when we praise out loud. And I think this is part of what Paul says when he says, Speak to one another in hymns and songs and spiritual songs. Edify me in the way that you exalt in God. Or is your talk about God bland and plain and simple and ordinary because Paul's language here is not ordinary it is extraordinary extraordinary i don't want to give the whole you know thing away right up front but that word indescribable is a very rare word and we'll look at it but first i want to point out How or why or what was the reason or what is involved in the eruption of praise here. This doxology. I want to give you three things. Number one, praise arises from the sovereign grace of God. Now we are going to extract every last ounce and probably won't even do it justice, but of this text We want to look at this text and all of its many implications, and the very first thing that I see is the sovereign grace of God, emphasis on the word sovereign. So many people today, sadly, are ashamed and afraid of the sovereignty of God. My dear friends, I would submit to you that the Apostle Paul does not view the subject of sovereignty in that way. As a matter of fact, that was one of the reasons why I became a Calvinist, was because I saw the Apostle Paul in places like Ephesians chapter 1, glorying over sovereignty, relishing it and reveling in it and celebrating and worshiping it and bringing it right to the front and not hiding it in the back. He opens the book of Ephesians by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Sounds like he's pretty caught up. Just as he chose us in him, having predestined us before the foundation of the world. Chose us in him before the foundation of the world, having predestined us in love. For adoption, that doesn't sound like Paul's trying to hide the sovereignty of God. It sounds like Paul is adamant that it is fuel for worship. It is fuel for a high view of God. It is fuel for doxology, and the same thing I think applies here. I have to bring that out to us to note that Jesus, the cross, salvation, faith, eternal life, all of it comes to us by God's sovereign volition. You know what His volition is? His will, His initiative, His own prerogative. God is free to do whatever He wants. And for the child of God that has been subdued by the mind of God and the Word of God, that is a point of celebration and adoration that is a point for you and I to stand and look at and stand in awe and stand in amazement and gawk at it and wonder at it and be overwhelmed by it and celebrate it and worship God because of it. For by grace, you have been saved. Not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. God. And so the very first thing is to note that God, it was his sovereign initiative that gives us the gift. Now quickly, what is the gift? I believe the gift is Christ himself. And that is the opinion of the majority of the commentaries that I read and that there are. Murray Harris does a whole Uh, survey on that and concludes that this is the majority view of all commentaries that Christ is using the word here indescribable gift in a very rare and unique way just like I said to describe the ultimate gift Christ and I think he's referred to that ultimate gift already in the context of second Corinthians and we'll go that we'll go there in a minute but just to show you that everything that's good in your life from God comes to you from God's own sovereign choosing, His own initiative, His own will. He was not constrained. You know what a gift is? A gift is a gift. A gift can't be earned. A gift is not necessarily deserved. A gift cannot be solicited. A gift if it is truly a gift it is free undeserved unsolicited a free gift help me with the words it's a free gift you can't buy it you don't deserve it it was freely bestowed upon you and salvation in Christ i think is that's what's in view here it's not just Christ but the fact that god gave us christ It's not just that God offers the gift. It's not not just here God presenting the gift to us. It is that God gives us the gift. There is an approbation of the gift, a receiving, an appropriating, a taking to yourself the gift that God offers to us. That's the gospel. Romans chapter 3, verse 24 says, Being justified as a gift. By His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. He saved us and He called us with a holy calling. Not according to works, but according to His own purpose and His grace. Wow. Which was granted to us. Listen to that language of free bestowal. In Christ Jesus from all eternity. This is why I said the sovereign grace of God. If you're here today, if you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, that was given to you from all eternity God had decreed from long ago, from before he laid down the foundations of the world, that you would be a Christian sitting in this room, listening to his word, filled with his spirit, and on your way to heaven. That's what sovereignty means for the Christian. That's what the sovereign grace results in for the Christian. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, a very strong passage here on sovereignty. It is by his doing, that you are in Christ Jesus, in other words, it's not of your own doing. it is not of any other doing. it is not of any manipulation, it wasn't because of a prayer, it wasn't because of an altar call, it wasn't because you signed a card or were raised in a Christian home or because somebody told you that if you went to church that meant you're a Christian. That would be that you're, that would be your own doing, but you're in Christ Jesus. By his doing. And because of that, Jesus becomes to us the wisdom of God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Meaning, you have been bought. Anytime you see the word redemption, means you've been purchased. You know what set you free? What opened your eyes? You know what made you new? Gave you new life? The fact that God released you. You were sprung free from your sin. He redeemed you. He bought you. He purchased you. And in the etymology of the word redemption, the history of that word, if you go back into the Old Testament, it always means something that is bought and then obtained. Not just something that's purchased and then just kind of left out there. No, no, no. If you purchase it, If you redeem it, you get it. And that's what God does. He redeems us for himself. He gives us this gracious, glorious gift. And it is also the gift. And from this gift flows all the other gifts of God. Isn't it amazing? You've heard that phrase, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Kind of like that. Jesus is the gift through which all the other gifts of God come. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, just to see this, that Jesus is himself, as John Flavel Puritan said, he is, the, he is the source and the fountain of life itself. Romans eight thirty-one. what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Boy, I hope you treasure that promise. He who did not spare his own son, see, he didn't spare the gift, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? All things are yours. Everything belongs to you, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I think it's verse 23. Everything belongs to you. Life, death, the Apostle Paul, everything is yours because of Christ. In other words, if you, if you see it right, if you understand it, all of life, trials, tribulations, heartaches, death itself, everything works to your advantage because of Christ. So much so that Paul could say, dying is gain, <laughs> I pray that we would be those that would learn to talk like that. That we learn to talk like that. Okay, let me move on to the next one. Boy, so much here. The second thing is that praise arises from the infinite value of the gift itself. The infinite value of the gift itself. I'll warn you right now, okay, I came here with an agenda. I came here... Loaded up and ready to go. I came here with a, with a predisposition, with an agenda to make you a lover of Christ. To make you the kind of Christian that just relishes Christ. Savors Christ. That you long for Christ. That in your heart of hearts... And in the back of your mind and and, and in the the, the the sincerity of your spirit that you want Christ. I wanna be in a church where people long for Christ. I'll never forget. I was at a I was at a church once, I got invited, oh don't remember how, and all that, but I was there, they were doing an ordination thing, they were ordaining a couple pastors and some deacons, and this was a Spanish congregation, Spanish congregation, all Spanish was being spoken. And um, I remember this old man got up at the very end of the whole ordination ceremony, and he could barely stand, they had to help him to the pulpit, and this, they, they, they introduced him as a pastor that had been a minister for many years, 40 years, been preaching, retired now, he gets up there. I could hardly understand anything he's saying. His Spanish was so broken up and, and just he's old. And, but I understood one thing at the very end. He sort of grabbed onto that pulpit and roused himself. He was there to give an admonition to the men being ordained into the pastorate. And he looked to these men in Spanish and he says, Vamos a predicar Cristo. He says, We are to preach Christ. And then he said it like four times more. We are to preach Christ. We are to preach Christ. We are to preach Christ. Don't forget that when you come. The ministry is not about you getting all clever and trendy, hip and cool and, you know, all of that. The ministry is about you being just a tool, just a vessel. You're just a contour so that Christ could shine through you. You're just a herald. You're just there to be an instrument, a tool in the master's hand. That's it. You're just a magnifying glass. You know, when you grab a magnifying glass, you don't look at the magnifying glass and go, wow, what a neat magnifying glass. Especially if you're examining a diamond. You're so caught up with a diamond. Who cares about what magnifying glass you're looking through? Isn't it sad today? Isn't it pitiful today? That many people go to church, and the first things they ask is, How's the worship? How's the singing? Is it Sony quality? How how are the activities? Do they have knitting circles? Do they have a rock climbing wall in the back? Do they have an arcade upstairs for my kids, keep them busy? And the very last thing that people are asking today, in many places, is, How's the preaching? Does the pastor preach Christ? Or is this church sort of imbalanced? This church has a focus. It's an agenda. They're, a, you know, they're this kind of church. My dear friends, I submit to you that I don't want to be anything but a Christocentric church. A church that is focused on Christ where Christ is the center. And we can only do that if we truly, truly value The gift. So I want to lay before you, hopefully, a little bit of a portrait, a doctrinal portrait of who Jesus is, who he is, and what he has done. In other words, we need to talk about the person and work of Christ in order to rightly treasure him. First, the person of Christ Jesus is the the theanthropic man, he is the God man, fully God. Fully man, indivisible in his nature. You cannot divide his natures. You cannot divide his humanity and from his deity. They are are joint together, they are inseparable, but they're not confused. And they don't become a new nature mixed with the two. But he holds a dual nature. This is called the hypostatic union of Christ. Two natures. The word hypostasis means nature. And hypo is, is, is the idea of dual, a dual idea here. He has two natures. He is everything that we might conceive of being as, of a man. Scripture says that he was tempted in all points just as we were without sin. In other words, Jesus can identify with you. He knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it meant to hunger. He knew what it meant to labor. He knew what it meant to be tempted. He understood what it meant to be under the the, the burdens of society. He knows that. He can identify with our sufferings. And because Of his dual nature, we can see the beauty of Christ sometimes by the polarity of his attributes. Isn't that right? Because he is not just fully man, but he is also fully God. When we think about that, it makes the person of Christ indescribable, inexpressible. To know that it was the God-man, to know that it was the eternal word of God, the divine Logos, who came who came who came who came and the apostle paul my dear friends had a personal obsession with this with this person the apostle paul had a personal obsession to know more of christ to know him more clearly to know him more intimately to know him more truthfully genuinely philippians chapter 3 verse 7 Whatever things were gained to me, those things I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I, call, I count everything to be lost in view, in view, listen to this, in light of, in light of the fact, of the, uh, in light of the truth of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Every child, every kid in this church They need to be awakened to this, that the most important thing in this whole life is not to get the next gadget, the next video game, not to run out with the friends and do this and explore that, that your greatest adventure, your chief entertainment, and hopefully for all eternity, it will be the greatest entertainment in all of the world and and conceivable is to know Christ, to bask in his presence, to marvel To marvel at the beauty of the Lord. To marvel at him. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Has it cost you anything today to follow Christ? Has it cost you anything to follow Christ today? I'm going to go do a funeral right now where I have people that hate me so bad they don't even want to talk to me. They don't want me to come in there. And I I, I submit to you it's only because of Christ. I have aunts that have already said we are going to get up and walk out when he gets up and talks about that Jesus. That's okay. Rubbish. I want to know Christ. Paul was captivated with Jesus of Nazareth. We forget this. The man that he persecuted from Nazareth, at least through his followers. He was obsessed with him, both that he was Christ, that is, Messiah, Son of Man, Son of David, but also that he was Lord, divine Son of God, God over all, as Paul says in Romans 9.5. Because Jesus uniquely possesses these attributes, you can see the glory of Christ sometimes more perfect through this fact right here. And that is that as God, we wouldn't expect him to bring himself low like man and identify with us. Edwards said it the best. Listen to this very carefully, because everything the Puritans say is hard to listen to, (laughs) it's hard to understand. Edwards said, there is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. I love that. There is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. And Edwards goes on to talk about in that book, altogether lovely, that Jesus is the lion and that he is the lamb. Listen, friends, as almighty God Jesus' power is magnified through the fact that he suffered at the hands of impotent men. Because of his perfect holiness, his holiness is glorified and magnified through the fact that he was willing to dwell with sinful men. He died at the hand of sinners, he died for sinners, and even for his enemies for his enemies. But when we talk about his person, I want to bring in two more categories quickly. We're also talking about his pre-incarnate glory and his post-incarnational glory. Before Jesus came in the flesh, where was he? What was he doing? Jesus said, I came out of heaven. (gasps) What, the people said? What are you talking about? How can you say you've come down out of heaven? Before Jesus took on flesh, he dwelt in a habitation of glory as the word of God. He was the creating word of God. He was the wisdom of God prior to his humanity. Jesus Christ was God's divine word and his eternal son. Such mysteries. Who can know? Who can plumb these depths? He was God's covenant partner in the plan of redemption. This is why Jesus can say, I have come down from heaven. Jesus is also the one that shares pure ontological glory with the Father. Amazing. Now, Father, John 17, 5, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory that I had with you before the world was. What? What? Before the world was, what was there before the world was? Jesus. Sharing eternal glory, unmitigated, unending glory with the Father. Prior to the incarnation, Jesus created the world. Hebrews chapter 1 says, through him God created the world. God made the world. For John 1, you know this passage. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. We know according to verse 14, that's Jesus, the incarnate Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. Apart from Him, nothing came to be that has come into being. Nothing. That's so beautiful. Jesus made everything. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, "For by him all things are created, both in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I remember being a unsaved unconverted young man about 18 years old when I don't know where I don't know what I was reading or what how it landed on me but somebody said you know that Jesus holds everything together in him everything consists should he stop yet for a moment to just think of us the whole universe would just incinerate If if not for his creative power, if not for his sustaining power, you and I would not have the molecular glue holding us together. Who is this man? Never a man spoke like this. His, His post incarnate glory, of course, speaks of when he took on flesh. John 1:14, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we saw his glory glory as of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth the glory historically that's being spoken of here you probably remember if you've done any study here is the glory of the tabernacle the glory of the temple the Shekinah glory of God the glory of the covenant Lord Yahweh in the midst of his people So when John says this, and he uses the word tabernacle, which has been translated dwell among, it's the word skenao. It means literally to pitch a tent. That's beautiful. Well, this is in the history of redemption. The Jews, they pitched a tent, all right. It was a big tent. It was called the tent of meeting, the tent of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of God, And it was at the tent of meeting where God would meet with his people. That's why it was called that. So when Jesus says, or when the Bible says of Jesus, he came to dwell among us, it means he came to tabernacle among us. You see... Brothers and sisters, what we have in Jesus Christ is that for which the people of God for thousands of years groped for, longed for, wanted to see, wanted to have, didn't want to, didn't want to relinquish, for example. As the children of Israel are traveling through the wilderness and preparing to go on their journeys, the people are, interestingly enough, in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 10, they are quite content with having God out there out of the camp, over there in the tabernacle, and they worship in their tents. God's over there. We're over here. <laughs> he's close enough, but he's far enough. You ever feel like that? You want God close? Not too close. You want God? Oh, we want, we want God, but sometimes we want him over there. Because we're afraid of what happens if he comes over here. Because God is holy. And the people were quite content. As a matter of fact, it says they worshipped at their tent every man. But not Moses. Not Moses. Moses begged God. God, if your presence doesn't go, don't lead us up from here. You see that? If you're not in our midst, forget We don't want to sojourn on our own. I have good news for you. You are not alone. In Christ, Christ is sojourning with you. He is your fellow pilgrim, your fellow exile. He's with you on the way. Jesus said, Hebrews 13, verse 5, it says, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Jesus said in Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Even if world history goes on for another thousand years, two thousand years, my dear friend, some premillennialists are saying, and it's going to. <laughs> but you know what I mean. In this age, even if we start flying around on spaceships like Star Wars or Star Treks, Star Treks or Star Trek, beam me up, Scotty. It doesn't matter. Christ will be there when you arrive. He is with us always, even to the end of the age. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And you don't need to beg him to go with you because he's not only with you, he's in you. It is the glory of God come to new heights. New heights. That's why it says in John, we received of his fullness. Beautiful his fullness oh boy the next thing is his work not just his person but his work and in his work we are talking about his work of redemption we are talking about his redemptive work that has been decreed long ago please turn with me to ephesians chapter 3 verses 8 to 12 ephesians chapter 3 verses 8 to 12 Because he came to fulfill the work that God gave him to do. And this is the work that you and I marvel at. His redemptive work, which was decreed long ago by the eternal counsel of the triune God. I know that sounds crazy, but let Paul make it plain for us, okay? Ephesians 3.8. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach... To the Gentiles, the unfathomable riches of Christ. Question for you. Can you say that you have tasted, that you have known, that you can identify with what it means to, of a genuine heart, describe Jesus, His person, His work, as unfathomable riches? Riches. I know the the houses down the street are nice. I know the cars that we see drive down the road is nice. I know they're nice. I know that some people have a nice amount of money in the bank. I know that we think we know what riches are. But for Paul, true riches was was that which was, was found in Christ He says, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers, the authorities, and the heavenly places. This is what I want to focus in on. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he, God, carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness, confidence, access through faith in Him. You see, this is His work is according to God's eternal purpose. Jesus came in obedience to that purpose, in obedience to that covenant, that plan, that pact that the Father and the Son made together to save and to redeem a people for Himself. Amazing! He came according to Scripture, He came in the fullness of the times, Galatians 4.4. He came as the son of David. He came through virgin birth. He came to his own, John 1.12, and they didn't receive him. He came in the form of a slave, Philippians 2.7. He came so that scripture can be fulfilled and so that he might do the will of God to perfection. You know, we have so many books on what's the will of God. How can I do the will of God? How can I find the will of God? Well, my friends, let me tell you, Jesus did the will of God perfectly every time without fail. That's why he can say, the author of Hebrews says, Behold, I've come to do your will of God in the scroll of the book. It is written about me. That's amazing. That's Psalm 40, verse 7 through 8 part of Christ's redemption was to some was to suffer and to triumph. We can also see the beauty of his person and of his work right there. It was he, he came to suffer and to triumph in his sufferings. He was born under the law. He took on humanity. He laid aside his glory. He was numbered with sinners. He was betrayed into the hand of sinners, though. He he was betrayed in the hand of sinners Isn't that amazing. God in the hand of angry sinners? When in reality, we know what's really going on. These are men, all mankind are sinners in the hands of a holy God. He was mocked, beaten, and scourged. He didn't open his mouth. He just took the suffering faithfully, quietly, patiently, obediently. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, Isaiah 53:7. He was nailed. The, the, the old Puritans would sing hymns about Jesus being pinned to the cross, where he poured out himself to death. Isaiah 53:12. He bore the wrath of God as our substitute. Romans 3:25. And the amazing thing about Jesus is that his beauty is magnified through the horror of what he went through. This is what makes Jesus so beautiful. It's who he is. Who is it that is suffering on the cross? In his triumph, he rose from the dead on the third day. He proclaimed his triumph to imprisoned spirits, 1 Peter 2.19. He cancels the power of sin by nailing it to the cross. They thought, he, they thought they were nailing something to the cross. He was nailing something to the cross. Sin and the power of it. He overcame the world. He takes away the sting of sin. He strips death of its victory. Satan, it says, he renders powerless. In John, it says in 1 John 3, verse 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And he will come again to triumph over all his enemies and to judge the living and the dead. These are reasons, I think, why we can say with Paul, Christ always leads us in triumph. Let's get to the last point. Praise arises from the redemption of God's people. What is the response of the redeemed? In light of such a beautiful and glorious gift, this glorious Son of God given for you, His body broken for you, His blood spilled for you. We celebrate it every month on the Lord's Supper. What is our response? You know, with every gift, there's a sacrifice, and God sacrificed everything when He gave us His Son. This is what it means to become rich at God's expense. Rich at God's expense. Looking back now at 2 Corinthians 8-9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. Though he was rich, and we saw some of that richness in his preincarnate glory, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. This is what it means to have God's riches at Christ's expense. The response of the redeemed, I will submit to you, is a particular type of praise. A particular type of praise. It's not moralism. It's not, oh yeah, I know the man upstairs. That is false religion. And it stinks in the nostrils of God. It is perfunctory worship, meaning it is a sham. That's what led God to say to the people, In the Old Testament, in the book of Amos, I hate your holy assemblies. I hate your Sabbaths, your new moons. I hate your festivals. Why? Because these people praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. But when your heart is involved, can you but help to be like Paul? You know, say, oh, thank God for his gift. No, thank God for his indescribable gift. You see, that kind of language... It might be indicative of something going on in there. You know, this is what we do when we really, really, really like something, right? When we really want to lavish praise on something, it's not enough to say, oh, yeah, you know, my, my wife is, she's, she's pretty. You would know, Be careful. You ain't getting in trouble if you just talk like that. You better say a lot more than just that. You better say, my wife is the most beautiful woman in the world. It's because you have a relationship. It's because you authentically believe it. There is real love. The Christian religion is all about love. But it is not shallow love. It is not superficial love. It is not the lust of the world. It is the love of God. It is holy love, sacred love, sanctified love. It is mature love. It is love that sees God for who He is and responds in the only possible way that love can, worship, praise, speak well of, esteem, treasure, love it, prize it. We prize whatever we treasure. For Paul to describe Jesus as God's indescribable gift is in league with the way that he speaks all the time. And this is why I said, I want this to be in our conversation. If, if it's not, something's wrong. I would submit to you. If it's not, we're not spending enough time with God. If it's not, it's because you are not tasting. We go to restaurants all the time here in our fellowship. And when we get there and we're hungry, usually, because we've been fellowshipping for a long time, everybody's getting hungry, even a little cranky. We get to the restaurant. If it's good food, if you like it, Mexican, Olive Garden, whatever, we do not cease to praise that food, don't we? Oh, that's so good. This is my favorite. My wife, just give me a little corner. Because we love it. It's satisfying. My dear friends, if Jesus is that satisfying Savior that he is, but if he is that for you, you can't shut your mouth about it. You won't be able to hold back the praise. It'd be like eating the, most, the best ribeye steak you've ever had in your life and then saying nothing about it. Christians are not Stoics. And Stoicism is not godly. You know, it was the pagans in the ancient world that were silent in their worship. The Christians were bubbling over with celebration. You can't celebrate love quietly, folks. When I said that this passage is in league, I'm almost done. Don't start getting cranky right now. Romans thirty three. let's... let's um, Let's look there quickly, and then I'll end with another verse. But Romans eleven thirty three, much in the same way, much in the same league as this verse that we're looking at here. He says, "Oh, the depth! Are there any O's in your life when you talk about God? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments, and unfathomable His ways." For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to him again. For from him, through him, to him, are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's the kind of praise that springs out of a redeemed heart. It's not just Paul either. Let's close with 1 Peter 1, 6 through 8, which brings everything to a beautiful crescendo because it speaks not only of the praise, but also of the personal experience. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. Verse 6 says, in this you greatly rejoice, that is, in the midst of their trials, even though for now, for a little while, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ! Though you have not seen Him, I haven't seen Him. Have you seen Him? Not like Peter Psalm. Peter says we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. I haven't seen Jesus, but you love him. Love is the bridge. Love is the bridge to the incarnate, exalted king of kings and lord of lords that now sits at the right hand of power, far out of our reach. But if we love him, in a sense, we see him. We love him, though you do not see him now, but believe in him. You rejoice, and then again, this is the language, with joy and glory. No, that's not enough. That's not enough. With joy inexpressible and full of glory, that's the abundance that we should have. When we taste and we see that the Lord of good, that the Lord is good, we cannot help but to, we cannot help but to say, inexpressible, full of glory, 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 glory. We want to lavish him with glory, crown him with many crowns, and then cast your crown down because he's worthy. Thank God for his indescribable. Father, forgive us, forgive us for the the incompetency of our praise. You are a God that deserves worship of the highest caliber. You are a God that is surrounded by legions of angels who can't even get over one attribute of God crying out holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Father, we're asking today give us eyes to see Your glory. And the glory of your son, the same glory that Jesus that Jesus says he wants to share with us. For he says in John 17, 24, Father, I want them to see my glory. Lord, thank you that you've invited us into that fellowship of glorious, glorious love. Help us, Lord, to worship you with hearts that have been forever altered by the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.